Welcome back. Welcome back to uh, to the Northern Hemisphere. Oh, I've been gone. Yeah, I've been gone. <laughs> it's gonna, it's going to take us a while to get back into this. Yeah, we're rusty. We got some rust. You got to take a wire brush. You got to get that rust off. <laughs> well, I trust you to get the wire brush on. Yeah, you? yeah. <laughs> but if anyone's going to take a wire brush to you, it's going to be me. That's for sure. Now got we have a, little, a guest got a today. Coffee. Got a but, little coffee. Oh uh, yeah, coffee. It smells delicious. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little off time zone. Today's the, I've been back a few days now, and, I, and today's really the first day you where jet lag a, has kicked in. You were half a world away. Yeah. So it's a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, it's I, like a flip. Let's just say down. I've got some. I've got some new thoughts on the uh, knee defender. Oh, right. As a long time air traveler, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone with a oh, little my. experience now. Um, yeah, I've had, yeah. All right. So, what were you going to say? Something I interrupted you. We I really interrupted you. We have a guest, and I'm as usual. I'm a little confused on, pronu- on pronunciation. Um, <laughs> what is this? Your, I didn't know about this. this your dog. Your dog is in the studio. Oh yeah. And so is it Darcy or Darchy? Which is the? <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh, Darcy. Are we going to do bits now? <laughs> yeah, that was my bit. <laughs> was I'm trying bit? to get. That was a bit to blow away some of that rust. <laughs> well, that was an anti-rust bit. Um. Yeah, I don't think it worked very well. We have a few topics today that we're we do. Get to. We have a number of topics. We've got a number of topics, but it's going to be kind of a catch-all show yeah, in a way, right? Right. Just to get, we're catching back up. We're getting some. We're putting some oil on the on the on the on the joints there. Getting our sea legs back. Yeah. So, um, this is, we're like the Tin Man. We need a little squirt of that oil. All banter today. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have some substantive top, topics to talk about, right? We do. We do. But, um, feedback. Feedback? Do you want to talk about feedback? Sure, we can. Uh, we let's got get into that, and then we can talk about we can talk about my travels and their relevance for what we're doing. We can talk about this uh, blog post that came up that we want to talk about. Yes, that relates to a law review article, all kinds of stuff. No, the feedback relates to it was really a shout out to us, uh, telling us to emerge from our uh, our vacay, our vacation. That our, her our, words, our, our hiatus. She used the words vacay, if I'm... She used the word this podcast. This is on Twitter. Vacay, right? Yeah. Uh, Michelle, a uh, friend of the show, Michelle Meyer, right. who we uh, think is wonderful, uh, she said, oral argument, surely, surely you will emerge from your podcast vacay to cover this story, and it's a story about speed trap law. Right. And now, she happened to be incorrect about our emerging from hiatus, but... We're here back today. And well, we we will, thought about it. We will be talking about it. We will be talking about it. I, I, Very um, important case. Um, and, and Joe, what, um, what's the topic of this case? What, what is the subject matter of this case? What important civil right does this case concern? Um, a free expression. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, signaling people and when you see us this is speed trap law speed trap law i said right. that yeah oh i oh i see i'm I, i've You're got not the jet paying line. attention no, are I'm you going to remember that we did this are you going to remember did like what? tomorrow are you going to remember we did this probably not wow the editing should be fun then <laughs> um <laughs> um so yes it's a speed trap case but um 1983 claim brought by someone arrested booked and such um, by the these local police in Missouri in their town, I, mean, uh, I don't remember the name of the town. Um, and the the statute is interested. It's an interesting statutory interpretation case, as well as a, a free expression section nineteen eighty three claim. 
uh, and it's the subject of a prior a court of appeals opinion. Now, I read this when when she sent it, so you got to correct my memory if I'm if I'm wrong about okay. it. My memory is, as you say, it's a civil rights suit. So the the person, uh, this is someone who flashed their lights to warn an oncoming motorist yes. of a speed trap. Correct, right? As all good people do, right? Not so much Joe, but all you know, most most you good said good people. people, right? Right. Well, you know, true as stated. Uh, and police officer is upset by this, detains this person yeah. for some period. Yeah. I don't think, didn't arrest them. But no, I, deta- think they, I think they did. Did they take him back to the station? I think so. Are you sure about that? Not 100% sure, no. Yeah, I, they allege some deta- detention. We're going to link up the complaint in the show notes. Yeah, this is an ACLU complaint. And uh, there was some period of detention. Um, and I don't remember, I don't think they took him back, but maybe they did. It doesn't matter for these purposes. It, it, was, it was more than just, Write the ticket, but they they uh, they they cite the ticket itself, which talks about the compulsory payment, and if you don't pay, this is what happens. Right. And so, trying to lay out that there was an official action here, based, based on this. Um, and uh, but all of this was dismissed. Of course, the, the actual criminal complaint against her was dismissed um, because of an earlier case, which I think Ellisville sticks in my head. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this case before? The case which this, establishes we, the law? We talked about this Absolutely we did. In our, I, I would say, underappreciated speed trap episode. <laughs> it was early, one of the, it's it's one of the earlier episode. ones. Yeah, it has, it has fewer downloads than other cases. Right. If you can believe it, our, our generative speed trap discussion <sighs> yeah. hasn't attracted quite the listenership. As, uh, but anyway, it, was from, it was from a while back. Yeah. Um, but that case that we talked about, when it, I, I don't remember if it was when it came down or we found it. I don't think it's that that old. Uh, that I think old. I think it was roughly when it came down that we talked about it. Um, maybe earlier. I don't know. I don't know. But they cite that case as establishing the clear law that this that this these people should have known about. Right. Um, yeah. There's a. I mean, there there is a yeah. free expression right. There's a First Amendment right problem. Yeah. With the way the local police were enforcing this particular ordinance, and it's especially funny that as this pointed out in the complaint if it is true let's take the allegations as true that the missouri you know safe driving regulations and suggests that when you're trying to that that flashing your headlights is actually the way to encourage other drivers to drive with more caution well that's yeah we're yeah this is the discussion we've had many times yes exactly this is the distinction between trying to help other people complete a criminal act and trying to discourage them from initiating a criminal act to begin with or, or to cease doing these are that's the there distinction an ambiguity, that we've been talking about of course, yeah. buried in the yeah. but but it is i just think it's interesting that that w- when you try to when you try to tell people what their options are for communicating safely and effectively with other drivers who are on the road the very thing you are encouraged to do is to flash your headlights. Yeah. So that is a good way to communicate yeah, yeah. safely and effectively with other people that they should proceed with more caution. New listeners are going to be puzzled by this discussion because they don't <laughs> they don't know what a long-standing interest we we new listeners just as an aside, we are the um, world's leading podcast authority on speed trap law. It's so true. And so whenever a new case comes up, we're And gonna... that expertise just gets deeper and richer with every passing right. episode like today. Yeah, and every and, a speed trap case that doesn't cite the show, that doesn't cite our show, is I think it's malpractice. I think it's probably uh, malpractice, but certainly bears explaining. It's certainly something you need. But to again, I, I feel like I haven't we haven't quite teed this up enough for um, 
people who don't know um, uh, civil rights law, but uh, so the the criminal complaint was dismissed against her, and so it's not that she's trying to defend against a fine him or something. Or her. I don't know that it was a her I, or I, him. Th- or this a, sticks in my mind for some reason. Well, I could Michelle be wrong. Meyer is the one who sent us the note. Yeah, I know, I know, but still, it sticks in my mind. I could be wrong. You know, so we're going to link up to the complaint. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, yeah, we'll link it up. You can see. Uh, so this, this is not about defending against a fine. They've dropped all those things. The the, the jurisdiction right. dropped all the complaints. Right. They said, yeah, are bad. You know, you're you're right. This is not a we're not going because of this earlier case. But the ACLU is is launching a 1983 suit, a civil rights suit, saying that uh, despite the fact that you dropped the case, you brought this you under color of state law, right. you violated her constitutional rights. Yes, and. That's what this is. And it has to be clearly established. And I'm sure there's going to be right. lots of stuff based on immunity. And, and what I that. hope they do is, is as the case proceeds, I do hope that they manage to figure out if what the official policies are of this local police force that bear on this issue, because they, they might have a policy about this and, and it really should. And it, if they do, one gets the feeling that it may be a policy they shouldn't have. In other words, it's a policy contrary to what these now established cases say about the fact that people have a free expression right to signal to other drivers that there are police in the in, in the area who are monitoring your speed. Now, these cases, interestingly enough, I think uh, we've dealt with them in kind of a goofy, funny way, right? I mean, let's face it, Joe, that's about, that's about all that we do. But that's what we've done. We've done it kind of these are interesting. We think it's the, the amount of kind of over engineering of the yeah, resolution well, of these cases has been kind of funny. Yeah. But this is a citation to Immanuel Kant that we referenced right. in one Hugely of the earlier cases. And uh, that's, you know, kind of funny. But this is a Missouri case and the whole issue of cops enforcing law where that law is basically respect the cops is a big issue right now, mm. right? This right. whole idea of whether there is a, uh, or, or to what degree police departments should be able to demand respect and obedience, you know, beyond the law or what kinds of laws there should be to require not that just, respect. Not just in Missouri. For example, I heard, uh, I saw, excuse I'm me. I'm just I, saying there's a special, there's kind of special resonance here that, yeah. and, and, and we've gotten, we've gotten requests from, from people outside uh, to, to talk about Ferguson and talk about the police issues and, that's something we desperately want to get into, but we we need to find the right guest for that. And, yes, because um, it's a very serious, very complex issue that merits right. a, a great deal of um, attention and care. And you and I measure. both have thoughts about not it. Not just attention, but care. And I'll just say, I think we've got a problem with, uh, not with all police departments, but with, with many, basically enforcing contempt of cop as the basic rule. Right. And and that's – but I want to get into that with someone who knows maybe more about the sociology yeah. of police. I think it's a very complicated thing because yeah. being a police officer is a very complicated job. Indeed. And one, one thing that's been on my mind lately – and I look forward to the opportunity to, to get into this with somebody because I think you're right that it's very much warrants ex- exploration. But, but one thing that's been on my mind lately is that as we, um, as we have these very high-profile events uh, – over the last six months, year, and bef- and and earlier, um, eventually, or or one thing I do wonder about in in this context is eventually, what sort of people are going to be attracted to becoming police officers? That's going to be affected by all right. of these events, right? 
because it, per, police work will come to be perceived as a place where it's appealing to you or not appealing to you because it's a place, it's an opportunity. Yeah, and I'm not sure which way that cuts. I don't either. Yeah. I don't know either. Yeah. That's what yeah, I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. It but could, it seems it could to cut. Have, it seems to cut. But well, which like, way? Well, yeah. it, would, it would be strange if it didn't, right? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. would be because it's like every other occupation, people have assumptions about uh, the sorts of things you get to do or that you would definitely be sure you wouldn't get to do at that, right. in that job. And therefore, it will attract some people more so than others. Yeah. So the the mix of people who become interested in being, you know, police officers or firefighters, you know, I'm and and I'm one of my grandfathers was a police officer. Mm-hmm. Another was a fireman. Yeah. So I think these are and I have I never met one of my grandfathers. The one who was a firefighter, though, so I knew him well and I right. loved him a lot and I looked up to him enormously and a great guy. And mm-hmm. um, and so I have a great a a warmth and affection for these very important, very difficult jobs, right? Um, as as callings, not just jobs. Uh, <laughs> but and the, and so I'm I, and so it makes me troubled and sad to see a lot of these news stories lately, oh, and to, yeah. and the and things like you know the respect as as if it were a criminal offense, and I uh, saw a story today about. Someone getting stopped because they were playing a, a song outside their car that is a uh, some obnoxious thing about the police. Right. That's the re- that's the yeah, lyric yeah, of the yeah, song, yeah, 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 yeah. and so then they get stopped, and yeah. it's just like, oh, we're de- we seem to be heading into this shame spiral. It's a very of- it's a very weird job because uh, you know to be consistent with our basic values, um, people have a basic right to be very disrespectful to the police, and the police have no. Um, no right and no power to respond to that kind of disrespect. And yeah, you, put put differently, a statute that said, um, you know, th- this criminal statute is you must respect authority, right? Is inimical to basic constitutional yeah, values. I mean, yeah, that's our our sort of legal culture and legal identity and right. political culture and political identity is that that wouldn't be right. Like that statute would not be a good idea. In, right in America, and that's the problem with the whole the culture of contempt of cop. This idea that right cops will use will will cite authority. Usually, like um um uh, what's what's the uh, public disorder? Yeah, disturbing the peace. Disturbing the peace. Or, yeah, yeah. So that can Resisting be used. Arrest. That can be used selectively to write. So this is a real yeah. problem. And and yeah. I think one of the things that I would like to focus on, and and with someone who can talk again, I think the sociology of police departments, what it's like to be a police officer, and what it's like as a person to be to receive disrespect you know and, and to have the the power to do something and yet have to restrain it like how do you, that's right. a really complicated problem yeah and one of the things that occurs to me is and, and it grows out of the speech trap discussions that we've had but it the first amendment is a very blunt instrument for dealing with these problems yes it, it doesn't really just think about the speed trap cases it doesn't really help does it i mean it's the vehicle by which People are able to say, I have a right to flash my lights. But what does it mean to have a right to – that just means that legally you can flash your lights irrespective of some local law that says no flashing lights or or some police officer's idea of obstruction of justice or whatever it is. But um, does the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, does that really help us think about whether people should be able to flash their lights to warn others of a speed trap or – or the examples that we've used before about warning somebody who has a gun, or you can do all the hypotheticals about how you warn people about right, police right. presence, and to what degree should we as citizens be able to talk to one another about police enforcement actions? Um, the First Amendment seems to me just it, 
yeah, the words are out there. I have the freedom of speech. But obviously that has limits. And some of those limits are, we try to make a distinction between speech and acts. And then we get into speech acts and, you know, which is the hybrid category. It just seems to me not that helpful. And, and what's interesting is how the speed trap stuff makes it just painfully obvious that it's not very helpful. I think I don't know. That's I want to. Well, it's we're not really prepared to talk about it. I guess, but I don't. So it's got a few things wrapped up in it. One of them is you know the wisdom or not of constitutionalizing certain kinds of questions in certain contexts. It's got that aspect to it. The it's it's got the separate and apart from that, it's got the you know what's a what's a sound and prudent approach in this context to right you know whether or not there were a constitutional issue. Um, uh, the this particular case, I, I think I've said, um, I think I said to you before we started recording, but um, the statute in the case is it's worded in a way that, at least when I read it, I thought, well, that doesn't sound. This ch- is the statute in this in the speed in trap this town, case. right? Yeah, that yeah. It, it, I thought to myself, well, that doesn't sound like a particularly germane statute to the activity that's that's being charged. That they're yeah, that they're yeah. trying to prohibit here. So. Um, which would have been another way to handle the the fact that this doesn't sound like a particularly prudent thing yeah. for the police to do. Um, you just, you know, interpret the statute differently. You won't have this problem. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but we got anyway, we, yeah. Lots yeah, of yeah. Events, um, thanks props to Michelle for doing the shout out. Well, I was just going to say though, I didn't want one more thing on this. Cause I think mm. it will be a bridge to maybe what we talk about a little bit later in the show. I hope, um, that a, a fruitful way to think about the First Amendment here or about, you know, so there's a sense, right, that just willy-nilly enforce, you know, preventing any citizens from talking to each other about police actions is, as we said, inimical to constitutional values. Like, what does that really mean, right? Is what, Do you have to find a line of the Constitution and be able to find a dictionary that through a number of dictionary – through a chain of dictionary translations says you can't stop people from flashing lights, <laughs> right? I mean, that seems not quite right, right? Uh, but the first, the freedom of speech seems to be a kind of principle, right? Which may be based on a more general principle of anti-totalitarianism or, or something else, right? But the first amendment itself is a maybe slightly more specific principle. And in particular, the freedom of speech portion, the clause is, is a more specific principle. And the characteristic of principles as against rules is that they have weight and they can yield to other principles, right? Um, you just know that the constitution is a collection of principles. Because our whole jurisprudence is about weighing these important principles against other important ideas. Sometimes it's other constitutional principles, and sometimes it's just stuff that the judges say you got to – the Constitution's not a suicide pact. It has to – we have to have effective government, and the fact that we have, have to have effective government is itself an important principle. And therefore, you see this in the language of constitutional law. Freedom of speech can be abridged, you know, despite the fact that it shall not be abridged. It can be abridged if there's a compelling governmental interest. And the government's means are narrowly targeted at that interest, right? I mean, uh, that's that's the um, only the most obvious and blunt way that um, the First Amendment can be abridged, uh, or the freedom of speech can be abridged. So, when you when when you see that, and you start thinking about these principles directly, like in a case like this one, the speed trap case, or more generally with the contempt of cop problem, and thinking about the sociology of police officers, I'm just kind of you know we haven't talked about this beforehand, so I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head here. I don't know if this is going to make good, good radio or not. Um, and I just want to maybe tee it up so we can talk about this with a guest in the in the future. But it it's, it seems to me that these uh, thinking of the Constitution as a set of principles helps to maybe deal more delicately with 
the real problems. You know what I mean? Or am Not I just, yet, but... Yeah, all right. Forget it. No, you say it helps. <laughs> approaching it that way helps to deal with these problems. Well, I, as opposed to approaching right. it some only other way would help that, us deal with those problems. Only in the sense that um, saying, being able to speak, having the freedom to speak to one another in in the most in the in the you know in the oldest sense of speak in the in the clearest most basic sense of speak is a is a strong principle, and it's a principle which is explicitly protected in the Constitution. Yes, right. It is. I think, under a more general umbrella of anti-King George, anti-totalitarianism, which animates, which is a broader principle, which animates a lot of the more specific provisions of the Constitution, right? Uh, What role, you know, this is a whole set of constitutional theory, like what role should that broader principle play? If any, there are those who say it shouldn't play only the explicit language. Which one is the broader principle now? This is the anti-totalitarianism, right? So what role should that play? Yeah, so if we're thinking of flashing the lights, which is not, you know, it's communication. And so there's one school of thought which says we got to look really closely and see whether that's speech. And if it's speech, then you can't touch it unless there's a compelling interest and blah, 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 blah. Okay. And if it's not speech, no protection at all. Right? Ah, yeah. And it, it seems to me and, – and then there's a whole speech acts and maybe intermediate scrutiny and, you know, this is the O'Brien case. So there's, there's a lot of stuff which is kind of in between. It's a very difficult problem. But um, so I think that this this – the 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 speed trap stuff and then the police stuff more generally i'm just thinking out loud now it seems to me kind of one of the reasons is difficult is because all of these principles have weight and they're important principles moving in all different directions yes you know and the specific principles are embedded in broader principles right and those broader principles like anti-totalitarianism compete against other broader principles like effective government and I say all this yeah, – I have very strong opinions about what happened in Ferguson and the indictment in New York and right. um, I'm interested in having a discussion about that. But, yeah. um, uh, and so I'm not – this is not – please don't take this as being an apologist for any of those results. It's certainly not that. Yeah. But, um, but it does suggest that these are – it's difficult to know how to constitute ourselves in terms of enforcement of the law, uh, um, adjudication of the – like these are actually difficult sociological questions which have – uh, answers given in the law, right? I mean, the law tries to give some answers to those, but to figure out what answer it gives, these, I mean, all right, I'm jet lagged. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell. Very complicated. It's, it, yeah, it's very complicated. Yeah, I'm getting wrapped around an axle. So let's go on. Let's, let's do some, that's enough for now on that. And, and I'd love to hear what listeners think, and then we can find the right guest and, and do more with it. But now there was another bit of follow-up, which was, um, a, a on a web, a, a person who was recommending some different podcasts. Now this is, this is, this was really great. And it wasn't really feedback. No. In the traditional sense of sending us a message, like an email or. No, she never got in touch with us at all. Like a tweet or anything like that. Uh, it's on the website, the learned fangirl.com. And she, it was, someone or or more than one per, uh, uh, person at the site was making some recommendations for different podcasts and this was um uh doing a podcast with your best friend that was the sort of the theme of the of, of this the set of recommendations yeah yeah and um so we were one of the three podcasts that was mentioned specifically 
Yeah, do you have it in front? What did she say? Do you have it in front of you or oh, not? Oh, should I read some of it? You can read a little bit of it. Yeah, I mean, this is and and we'll we'll link it up in the show notes. It's it's an interesting site. So um, yeah, and one of the I have to say, just as an aside, mm-hmm. that um, I what what made me even happier than that we were mentioned at in all this list, yeah, yeah. yeah, was the fact that another one of the people mentioned the third podcast. Um, <laughs> which is called Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time period <laughs> um which i love as a title yeah um but one of the two people who does that podcast is W Kamau Bell who is a, a stand up comedian whose work i think is really great oh yeah i think okay. he's super funny super smart mm-hmm. i just enjoyed watching he had a show on fx for a while i think it was or yeah. some fox network but he and unfortunately it's not there anymore but he's extremely funny uh, and so I was like, oh, my God, I mentioned in the same page, there's like a page of text in the world that has my name and W. Kamau Bell's name. <laughs> and that is awesome. Like, I loved that. That was really great. Um, Do you know what I loved about this recommendation? What? what? That it made me feel like we're doing a good job because um, uh, because the people who listen to the show think that we're friends. <laughs> I know with this, the dramatic, the level of dramatic performance <laughs> that we're accomplishing is really great. Because yeah. you're my, you're my sworn enemy. Of course. <laughs> um, Apparently, that it does seem that way sometimes. <laughs> um, no, you're you're my friend, best friend. I don't know. I'm going to go that far, but yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, this is illegal. <laughs> I'm going to read some stuff from it now. Please do. This is a legal podcast. Don't stop reading. <laughs> <laughs> the person says of their own, I love, you know, where is this such a bad reputation? <laughs> well earned, I think, in, yeah. some way, in some ways. Yeah. Um, this is a legal podcast. Don't stop reading. Uh, University of Georgia School of Law professors Joe Miller and Christian Turner talk about law, law school, legal theory, and other stuff. There is no intro music or other bumpers. The show just starts. An yeah, interesting that's, description of reality. Yeah, it just starts. Yeah, it just starts. Hello, Christian. It doesn't Mo- even really start. Huh? The, the show. I mean, it, it's already started. That, that you. There's been a conversation. You yeah, we're play, just. You're in the. Yeah. 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 Mostly they ramble. <laughs> does it say? Does it really say mostly they ramble? Mostly they. Well, uh, I need to keep reading. Mostly okay. they ramble for the beginning part of the episode mm-hmm. with the back and forth of true friends. Excellent. Mm. We are true friends. That's mm. true. I think that's right. I enjoy the actual law talking part, but their interaction is interesting enough for someone without such a substantial interest in law and the other law talking guests always add to the mix. That's been a uh, a gratifying part of the show, uh, doing the show, is the, num- the amount of feedback that we've gotten from non-law people yes. who enjoy listening to the show. Because law is very – you're fa- a fan of saying that law is a lot easier than people yes. may realize or may uh, may think, right. which, I, which is quite true. But law is also a lot more fun than a lot of people give it credit for. And I think that fun is what keeps us engaged and interested and Yeah. I, I would say it's 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 int- it's accessible and interesting uh to people beyond you know who are not lawyers. You can Very tell much. this you can tell this by the number of T V shows, movies, works of literature which focus on right. law and not always courtroom battles, but often you know, even if it is courtroom battles, people get, you know I mean, I think law is so, I think law is so, at least in our culture, it's so much a part of how we think about ourselves and how we think about our shared life. Yeah. And so it's a vocabulary. It's a, it's a way of thinking. It's a set of concepts. It's, um, 
you know, it's very important. Well, we appreciate the shout out. That was really, that was, was really great. nice. And, and we encourage other people, you know, we've grown a lot. We're, we're approaching our one year anniversary, Joe. Mm. And uh, we've got a lot of great shows that we'll be doing in, in the coming year. Right. Uh, a lot of people lined up. And um, if this is your first show, please give us another chance. <laughs> hey. we're, well, we're, I feel like we're rusty. And We've this got is, a huge catalog. This is, this is like all the rambling stuff, I guess. I guess. But yeah. well, we will talk about a topic in a second. But uh, um, so, so yeah, give us, an, give us another chance. We've got a big back It's back a great catalog. title, Rambling. That could be a title for this episode, Rambling. Probably not. Mm. You, Just I, I guess there. I guess you never know. I guess you never know. Uh, so those are my I, those are my two items. Okay, and I actually, remember now I got a comment from listener Brian, who wanted us to talk about, uh, you know, this whole scandal with the, the things that this guy Jonathan Gruber, not John Gruber of the talk show and Daring Fireball, but uh, Jonathan Gruber. Oh, called, the MIT professor. The MIT professor and what it says about the healthcare thing and the Hall big case, and who's kind of interested in this um, this whole mix and what to do with dishonesty within um, these kinds of things. It's a, I don't have the email in front of me, but uh, Mm. he's interested in in hearing about the, the impact of that. And so I'm sure we will talk about Hallbig at some point in the context Uh, of statutory interpretation. King against Burwell, I guess is the, 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 that's the the one that granted. Yeah. 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 Uh, But this, yeah, this issue of interpreting the affordable care act and um, you know, what, how to make sense of the language, how to make sense of the atmospherics in the political culture yeah. around the fight about the language. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just wanted to let him know that I got his feedback and, and yeah. it's, we'll put it on the to-do list. Yeah. What else we got, Joe? I don't know that I'd seen that note. So No, I don't think I forwarded it to yeah. you. Yeah. So that's a, good to get that on the list. Yeah. What else we got? What else we got? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> speed bump. This is the speed bump in the show. I'm going to have to cut this part out. Why? I th- I thought we were talking, you know, Michael Dorff had a, you know, we could do a whole show where we, every week we come on and we talk about Michael Dorff's latest posts. I, that is actually not an exaggeration or even necessarily a bad idea. I mean, it could be, you know, Christian oral and argument Joe on, on Dorff. Dorf. Yeah. Hmm? Christian and Joe on Dorff. Right. It's Dorff on law. We could say Christian and Joe on Dorff on law. Yeah. Hmm. I, yeah. Doesn't have quite the ring. Actually, you could do it, and then I could do an episode commenting on your comments on his comments. So I would love that. it could be that. Joe on Christian on Dorf on Law. I would love that. That would be just Joe. I've <laughs> been no. wanting to do the Just Joe show for a long time. Yeah. You, you, you're the reason people listen, Joe. Oh, okay. A lot of celebrity. We're not going down this road. A lot of celebrity. A lot of students came up at the end of the semester saying, hey, I hear you're on this podcast. Ugh. Getting a lot of attention. So. Uh, do you wear a baseball cap and sunglasses when you go out? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so he had a post today um, referring to the latest uh, a Virginia Law Review article, which has, I think, just been published by yeah. Judge uh, Edwards. Judge Harry on, Edwards on the, the DC, DC Circuit, Circuit, which is a follow up in a way to an article that he published. I don't. When was that earlier piece that he early nineties? Um, the essence of both. Let me, let me. Do you mind if I sum these up, Joe? I don't mind these articles. The message basically is that. Um, Legal scholarship sucks. <laughs> that's the, yeah, the, that's the article's view. That's the view he states in the article, both this one and in the earlier one. And in, and he can point to a number of other pieces that make various forms of this argument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing that he, it's amazing to me, this Dorf didn't say this, but it is amazing to me that, um, that, 
he spent 29 pages developing um, what is actually remains a ferociously superficial argument. What is the argument? You want to give it? The argument that Judge Edwards makes? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just trying to find the phrase that he uses over and over again. Um, we'll, we'll link up the article and, and, and right. Michael Dorff's uh, post on this. but Something like intensely abstract, theoretical, or empirical. Something like that. Yeah. Um, no, I, why don't you, you go first? I've read mo- I've read 98%. I've read all but like the last two pages of Judge Edwards' article. I read the Dorf on Law post, which just completely <laughs> dismembers um, a few of the points in the article. Um, I mean, it was it's it is a very I don't know that whether whether Michael Dorf meant for it to be harsh, um, but I read it as an, a very harsh. A treatment of the Edwards piece. And, and I think it deserves a fairly harsh reception. Uh, myself. Yeah, it is this... Um... I found it to be extremely irksome uh, <laughs> because quite superficial. And if we're going to be in the, you know, the seventh or eighth decade of this sort of stuff, um, yeah. I'd like the most recent iterations of it to at least suggest that learning is possible. I mean, could we get get a slightly deeper level of thinking about this stuff? Yeah. The, so, the, so the paper just really annoying. The, the latest paper um, is, I would say, the latest salvo in the in the uh, in the general kind of war against legal academia in general. Like, what what good is legal academics, and in particular, and and this is kind of, I think unduly conflated with the genre of law review articles, which is the main venue for the publication of legal scholarship. Sure. Not the only venue, but, but the main venue. Yeah. And so law journal or law review articles, um, are useless is, you know, the strongest form of, of, of thesis. And, and, and Edwards critiques, uh, law review articles for both style and, and substance. And what's interesting is I, I'm going to agree with you and I'm going to try to defend, um, legal academia, despite the fact that I think that the law review system has a lot of problems. Yes, that's the funny thing. You, We could have a whole separate episode where you and I talk about the many critiques that we would make of legal scholarship, of law reviews. Of I mean, we, we, I think we could <laughs> yeah. have many hours of discussion about that and probably will spread out over, you know, the many right. future episodes of this podcast I think as quite, well as some of the past ones. Question one, though, for a listener here, especially one who's either a lawyer or not a lawyer at all, you know, just one of the listeners we have who enjoys discussion about law, like why should they care about this seemingly intramural dispute about the use of mm. yeah, why legal academia and all that, right? Why and, should they? Um, the reason I find this interesting is because it, it – helps you know i'm reminded again of what this enterprise is what 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 is the um what what should we be doing and and, and indeed what does it mean to do the law at all like what what does it mean to to do law and then how do we do that better and what kinds of products do we need to produce in order to do that thing better of doing the law right and um edwards seems to have a concept of law in which certain kinds of talk and thinking about the law 
are not at all helpful, right? And and I think he's I think he's got a um, I think he's actually wrong about that concept of law. And 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 once you change your frame, it becomes apparent why other kinds of scholarship are more valuable. And indeed, he concedes it throughout the article. I mean, concedes this, concedes that, and concedes that. And we can talk about these specific things. And uh, but I think a general listener, uh, someone who doesn't have training, might find this kind of thing interesting because it reveals the um, how practitioners, how different, you know, the, the, we are a diverse profession, sure. and how the different people who compose the profession think about this thing that we're doing, right? And I think a just a a, um, a non-expert citizen who's interested in the law should have some skepticism about whether law should be very complicated at all. What kinds of things, like what should make it complicated? What kinds of things do you have to think hard about? Like what kinds of things should you be um, uh, thinking, yeah, like I said, what, what kinds of things should you be thinking deeply about and trying to figure out like what the answer is in a case? And how do we make law and how do we think about why that's figuring out what law we've made is difficult. I think all those are, it's, it's okay to have a certain skepticism about why we should make those kinds of questions at all complicated or why they are complicated. Okay. And that, that kind of question about why it's complicated or why it's hard or why it's not hard or why it's easy, go to the kinds of work that you think people should be doing in the field. Right. And as you say, I mean, I think yeah. Edward's, main criticism the phrase he uses um you keep calling it a field and what i mean one thing that i think it exposes is it's many fields it's not just one activity it's many types of activities yeah in my in my view well i mean right i mean this is um so so one this of this gets to my modeling theory in a way but i'm just talking about a model of law as a field and you might think that building houses is another field or or air travel or is another, I mean, but of course every field has many subfields, right? And every field is embedded in some super field, right? Yep. So law in general might be a field, right? But what you're saying is that that's too broad a category to say useful things. Yes. Is that right? Well, here's what. That's where I would want to start. Yeah. All right. Let's, here's what Judge Edwards uh, complains about. He criticizes and and, uh, Michael Dorff keys in on this as well, because he uses this phrase repeatedly through the article, uh, uh, Judge Edwards does, um, that law reviews are filled with articles which are intensely theoretical, philosophical, and empirical. So he criticizes, and here's the full quote that... that uh, also uh, uses the word abstract a lot. Yeah. Well, he says... In, so, which means, which is the opposite of applied. So what's wrong are intensely theoretical, philosophical, and empirical scholarship, which is very much in vogue in the legal academy these days, but is rarely of interest or use to wide audiences, right? So intensely theoretical, philosophical, and empirical. And the wide audiences he references repeatedly through the article are practicing lawyers, judges, legislators, and regulators. And I, you know, this is... (laughs) So first, I'm, I have a problem with it right off the bat because of – and I think that's the, this is the reason he uses the word intensely because, of course, as we've discussed before in the show and as I tell all my students, theory is just the name we give for having reasons for something, right? <laughs> right. And so if you have a reason for something, you have a theory of that thing, right? Right. And – Whereas one of my law professors was fond of saying there's nothing as practical as a good theory. Right, Because what he was trying to talk about was how important it is to know the reasons why you're doing the things you're doing right. because it helps you do them better. 
Right. And especially in law, which is a discipline in which we are doing things for reasons, you know, and we're right. citing reasons in order to come out with results. And one results. of the models of the profession is the giving of reasons. Right. And that's what you In terms of judicial do. behavior. Um, but setting that to one side, so um, <laughs> what is there besides the theoretical, philosophical, and empirical? I mean, <laughs> he seems... So, so, the tro- that's, um, so the trope is... Um, there's the stuff that lawyers and judges do and secondarily that legislators and regulators do. There's that stuff, which is the practical, the applied, the concrete. Um, and it's all about individual instances of things. Mm-hmm. And this is why the Dorf, although the Dorf's critique of, you know, saying it's odd that, that judge, uh, Edwards critiques empirical stuff alongside of critiquing abstract stuff since empirical things are the opposite of abstract things. Right. But in Judge Edwards, they're not, it's, it's not at all that way. With the way he's using the word abstract is equally applicable to the word empirical in the context of critiquing this scholarship, which is to say, it's not applied enough. It's not rooted enough in what the actual lawyers and judges do in their day-to-day work. It doesn't help them solve, it doesn't help them write a better brief write a better opinion because it doesn't help them analyze better a very particular applied legal question. It lacks traction with a result in a case. Correct. And so if you think it's one of the, I think it's one of the big, it's one of the real fatal missteps in the, in the entire discussion. Right. Cause he's, he's, he's taking as the unit of analysis, uh, the article. And the right. reason I think he's drawn to that unit of analysis is because it's the thing that looks the most like a case. And that's – after he makes that error, he makes a bunch of others. Now, expand on that. What do you mean by that? What- well, I, because in I think in, in, in a scholarly discipline, the unit of analysis isn't the individual article. It's the, it's the literature of, as a whole. It's the field. That's the right unit of analysis. Right. And just like to say – Oh, you know, um, well, this particular physics paper, um, there, here's all this stuff I didn't talk about, or here's this result they got, which is a, which doesn't look right to me or whatever. Well, that's because the one individual physics paper isn't the right unit of analysis. It's the entire body of papers about that problem in physics. Yeah, it's. The field is an ongoing discussion among scholars, which is recorded and used by future scholars as well, right? And it's it's ongoing conversation. And in the same way that a a sentence or set of sentences is the unit of our conversation between the two of us, so too an article is. And and one of the reasons that the article is the unit of discussion is because has to do with, I think, printing and the expense of printing and transmission. And, you know, there's probably – there's – Right. A history of this, and which may indicate that we could change things up a little bit, right? Um, these days, when ex- communications yeah. are, are less expensive, but 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 that's what you're saying is that you have to. Are you going to critique the conversation or the article? Yeah, and so how would you feel if someone, you know, someone walks up to this, uh, walks up to a garment, and points to a single thread in that garment, and uh, you know, I have major problems with this garment. Really. What's mm-hmm. what's wrong? This thread is awfully thin. Just that one. <laughs> yes, it's very thin. Well, <laughs> look to the left of it, look to the right of it, look above it, look below it. It's not by itself. 
Yeah, he's saying that like all these. Thre- so- he's saying that all. Oh, I see what you're saying. He's saying he's saying all these threads are thin, and you're saying yes, but a garment is a bunch of thin threads put together. Right, and I, yeah. and the reason I can tell is that he's doing the first and not the second is because he indulges in this extremely tired trope of silly title. The silly right, title trope. Right, right. Right. Which brought he Briar engaged in. I mean, and Chief Briar Justice Roberts. That. And so it's not like he's not in good company. L- he's got me, great company. Let me read the quote. Um, from and J- they're all yeah. being terribly intellectually um, shallow in making that. And he doesn't completely agree with this, but but he does cite it. So this is, uh, this is Chief Justice Roberts talking. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find the. I, I, this may have been at a talk, but anyway. He, it was like an ABA speech, I He think. says, pick up a copy of any law review that you see, and the first article is likely to be, you know, the influence of Immanuel Kant on evidentiary procedures in 18th century Bulgaria or something, which I'm sure was of great interest to the academic that wrote it, but isn't of much help to the bar. And I don't know that we need to belabor this. It's just we, factually wrong uh, it, it, as, a, as an account of what you would find. So if you pick up any law review and right. – we, we can, you, know, you can look at this. Go to any – you will find intensely – I think intensely practical articles. It would be very, very hard to get the article that uh, – on the topic that he cited right. published anywhere. Right. That would be really difficult. So – and it raises so – it's funny because it raises a real host of questions like where is this trope coming from? And w- <laughs> what does it speak to? It's clearly – it clearly captures something for the very smart people who are saying these things, right? right. Judge Edwards, Judge, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Breyer, incredibly accomplished, incredibly intelligent lawyers. Right. Uh, so clearly it's capturing something for them because they keep saying it. And they cite law review articles though and they and they use them. And, and you know, this right. is what I think Michael Dorff cites. The right. citations have gone up. Went up dramatically before the time, have, and then they've, and then they've, they've tracked back a little bit, a right? little bit, but um, in a piece that actually Judge Edwards did not cite. Yeah. Um. So his this 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 article is itself a shoddy piece of scholarship in that sense. It doesn't actually engage with the existing literature on the very question at issue. Yeah. Um. From a certain frame, right? It, it, like Judge Edwards, what you're really talking about are these things that would entail looking at things like, well, how often do judges actually cite law rev- the law review literature? Now, let's look at what they say, but let's also look at what they do. Because yeah. sometimes there's a disconnect between what people say and what they do. Yeah. So let's also look at what they do. Oh, my gosh, there's actually empirical literature about the degree to which judges, the frequency with which judges in different courts cite the law review literature. You could look at that. You could discuss it. He doesn't do that. So it's sort of like, okay, well, he's why didn't to, he's you do that? He's making a critical point about, I think, and he's, it's based on some assumptions which are unfounded. That's true. And he has some, I think, correct small points in here. I think, you know, he and I agree that too many law review articles are three-page ideas grown to 70 pages with 300 footnotes. A- absolutely. And, and this is a real problem. It is. And it has to do with perceived productivity requirements and tenure requirements. A lot of things which should be blog posts are turned into articles. I and, think that's probably And that right. makes – that's bad for everybody. There are also – I'm sure there are a number of cases where people work on things that aren't actually their true interests because they think it's the, the tenure article or it's the article that will get them tenure. Um, and this is, I think, misdirected effort. Um, and there's a lot of distorted incentives and be and therefore behaviors in 
uh, among the students who staff law reviews. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he makes a number of points that I think are are trenchant and um and by the way, not the slightest bit original. Yeah. Well, maybe it, <laughs> <laughs> made by many other yeah, people I, in I, many I, places. There on could many be a value occasions. in. I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing we need to keep talking about. Of and, course, and, it is because we haven't solved the problem them, yet. Yeah, he talks so about them in an interesting way, and he he mentioned some of the I think correct things. It's funny though that the incentives that so. For those who don't know the field at all, um, second-year law students are the ones who, um, in the spring, when they take over the editorial boards of their law journals, because uh, students run the law journals, um, a few peer-reviewed journals aside, um, the overwhelming number are student-run. Yep. And and the the new editors come in, like I said, in the spring of their second year, so they'll be running the journal in their third year, and they start to pick articles at that point. They pick most of their articles um, – in, in the spring or, or summer yep. of, of, of that second year. So you really you have law students who've had one and a half full years of law school. Yep, three semesters. Who, who are selecting articles. And, 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 you know, contra Judge Edwards, I think that actually skews toward picking intensely practical articles or, mm, or having a, a distrust of articles that are beyond their ken. Whether, you know, these overly abstract empirical articles are kind of no- notoriously difficult to place, ones that rely on you know, advanced statistics that the students don't feel competent evaluating. Right. Uh, articles that are on, you know, I th- frankly, yeah, I think jurisprudence is 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 difficult to get to get placed. Uh, articles on constitutional law applied to current constitutional law topics are probably pretty easy to get placed or easier. Now, right. I don't. These are just hypotheses, and you'd want to maybe do an empirical study to figure this out. And by the way, out. that's an important aside because I, so many of these questions are empirical and mm-hmm. this, this uh, which is a point that Dorf makes. Yeah. And it's a point that I was constantly thinking about as I was reading the Edwards piece. Um, right. Uh, ha- prompted to read it by the Dorf post. Uh, but but <laughs> the reason why it's an important aside is because um, it probably is worth, I think, some investigation and some some sharing of those findings um, because this is this has gotten so tired this sort yeah. of this sort of harangue against the legal academy and against legal scholarship and when that harangue is in the mouths of these very intelligent very accomplished judges uh, and in our field jurists are have a pace setting role and a norm setting role f- for the field or the fields um, you know I think it's it, it's like okay fine but let's really look at this and let's do something rigorous and 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 put down the kind of silly title trope as if that were an effective way to cope with all this yeah. and let's actually start investigating some stuff well i, I want to get into you know listeners who have stuck with us to this point of the of the show now <laughs> why do I, you why are you talking down our show well man? you know you, you never know you never know how these are going to go and um but i want to get to what to i hell really, with the people who left yeah <laughs> yeah the, our core listeners are still with us and That's right I my, I want to talk about my real problem with the piece and I think it's like I think it's fundamentally unsound because it is unclear about what it thinks scholarship should be and really unclear about what it thinks law should be um I think that and and here I'm going to put maybe some if not words in his mouth maybe some ideas in his head that that aren't there but I think when he talks about the opposite of intensely theoretical, abstract, or empirical, I think he has in mind scholarship which analyzes reasons for decisions in cases 
and talks about why there should be other reasons for decision or those reasons are wrongly applied. In other words, the empirical scholarship, which deals with inputs to a case, uh, to, to real cases, that would be okay. That's not abstract empirical for him, I guess. And scholarship, which focuses on, so we got a, I don't know, a case in adverse possession law and property. And it, you know, and the court cites, you know, for the following reasons, blah, 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 blah. And maybe it cites the common law and maybe it gives a little like policy answer, like because we want people to make better use of land, this, right? Um, And, and then a law review article, which directly deals with that reason and says, ah, well, that reason actually should have come out. It should have led the court to come out the other way because of this, that, and the other. So this is what we typically think of as doctrinal scholarship that takes the doctrine almost as a given and then shows how it doesn't quite fit together or shows that there uh, there's a case over here which looks a little bit different than the case over there. Right. Um, so the great treatise writers, for example, I think are produced the sort of thing that I think he would hold up as models of this work. Right. And the reason I'm hesitant to put these ideas in his head is because he does give um, praise to Ronald Dworkin and to other um, – truly theoretical scholars for having changed he the way we look at things. Right. right? And, and he said in part, he says, because you can't fully anticipate all that an idea may unleash in its mm-hmm. wake. And therefore it's great that there are people who are exploring ideas of this sort and that other sort in that way and that other way. So, uh, and that's which the is, right way to see it. Absolutely. I think. Uh, and that's the way that doesn't make the article, the unit of analysis. It makes the literature the unit of analysis. Oh, I, yeah. So if you do it, if you see, because that, and, and, he, and, he, and I think he's quite right about it in that portion of the piece. So th- that was going to be what I was going to go into. Um, and, and the specific version of it was, are you really going to say that the, the Ronald Dworkin wannabe or the person who also wrote at the same time as Ronald Dworkin, but never got the same fame, uh, like, should only Ronald Dworkin be allowed to write that kind of scholarship? I mean, who knows what's not. going to change people's minds until they've already been changed, right. right? And and who knows whether Ronald Dworkin would have written what he wrote had it not been for countless other people who wrote things that haven't been, you know. Uh, this is the whole scholarly enterprise. There's a bunch of stuff put out there, a bunch of ideas exactly. about ideas. And, right. and over time, they, they change minds. So this is what – And uh, most of them are going to be – Crap. And as someone who I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm realize I'm here to make everyone else look better. That's my <laughs> role in life. Um, the, but this is Linus Pauling once said this, you know, if you yeah. want to have good ideas, you need to have a lot of ideas. Yeah. Uh, meaning most of your ideas, like everyone else's are junk. Yeah. So you've got to have a lot of people doing a lot of stuff over a lot of years. Yeah. And out of all that stuff emerges some really good and useful and this stuff. Is, so this is the idea of not just standing on the shoulder of giants, but standing on the shoulders of everybody else. Everybody's standing on everybody else's shoulders. And maybe if we all do that, we'll be tall somehow. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so more specifically, he at least acknowledges that the work of the early legal realists, these are the um, scholars who, who pointed out that judges actually engage in some kind of policymaking. There are the degrees of freedom in the law and laws about like – dialogue and policy choice rather than formal logic or even uh, pure precedent, right? Uh, the work of the law and economists, right, who showed kind of the hidden economic structure of the common law and, and of other bits of law and the use of economic methodologies. Like these are big ideas that were um, initiated by groups of scholars and they have transformed legal thought. Mm-hmm. And you can't point necessarily to the moment 
where briefs were suddenly written differently, right? But you can say, looking at a brief today, that it is totally unlike a brief you would have written in 1900 or 1850 or 1820. Right. Um, we talk differently. And the reason we talk differently is because of this, the weight of all of this scholarship. And so in particular, I just wanted to note that um, uh, this focus on, to the extent that he excuses, I think he's on the right track when he suggests that there is value to that kind of scholarship, yeah. right? There's value to that enterprise. But then when he withdraws and suggests there's something wrong with intensely theoretical, abstract, and um, uh, uh, philosophical and empirical scholarship, um, I think he retreats into a model of law, which is let's just talk about the reasons which give uh, – let's just have a discussion about those reasons we use to decide cases. Right. But I think that doesn't have a broad enough conception of what law is, right? Um, because law is not just about the reasons that we decide cases, right? The reasons that we that we use in in, in deciding a case for one party or the other, Right. Law is about deciding amongst each other what kinds of reasons count, right? This isn't the level idea I've had. You know, it goes back several shows and, and other people have talked about as well. Who's going to talk about that? You know, so let's take, take one set. So, so suppose we've got this doctrine of contract law, which says that, um, you know, if you make a promise to someone, you have to keep it because promise keeping is a good thing. Everybody knows that promise breakers are bad people, right? Or at least Maybe good people doing bad things, but it's bad to break a promise. Sure. Um, and so let's look at this particular, I don't know, I should have thought about this. I'm bad at coming up with hypotheticals, but look, suppose you've got a case where someone breaks a contract and you're trying to decide how that case should come out. But it appears that some moral quandary there or something like that. So what, what's the right outcome in that case? Well, you know, you've got a decision in that case, which maybe applies this anti-promise breaking type reason, you know, that citing cases which say it's bad to break, break promises. Right. And scholarship about that may look at other cases that say, hey, it's bad to break a promise over here or it's bad to break this moral obligation over there. And I think that's the kind of scholarship he's talking about, which is internal to the set of reasons used to decide cases. The kind that he would, I think, decry as intensely theoretical, I think, is the kind of scholarship which would be about contract law rather than about contract laws. It's, you know, the kind of scholarship which says, you know, there's another way of thinking about what we're trying to do with contract law. And again, in one part of the article, he seems to embrace this kind of scholarship, changes the notion of right. what it is. In another part, he seems to say not so much. And what I mean by that is suppose you've got someone who comes along and says, you know what? Promise breaking is not always a bad thing. Uh, there are other areas of law where we don't always expect people to hold their promises. And in fact, let me show you a bunch of cases where by breaking the promise, everybody is better off and maybe no one is worse off, right? And boy, that seems to track with a notion of efficiency that economists have been developing. And so maybe we want to allow promise breaking in some circumstances and have a whole theory about why this would be a good thing. Or, or right? maybe we want to, we, maybe what we want to promote is people being free to arrange their own affairs and sometimes arranging their own affairs in the way that's most efficient for them will involve keeping their promises and sometimes right. it will involve breaking their promises. Right. What it always involves is trying to do X. Right. right? So you reconceptual you reframe it so that these two things that look different are actually two manifestations of one deeper thing. Um, that would be another way to sort of change the way you approach it. Where, so that, yeah, you're, t you're really asking like, 
what what are the reasons that led us to the promise keeping norm, right? So the promise keeping norm is our reason for decision in, in a particular case, or at least it looks like it is. It, yeah. it looks like it is, and now. We get new cases coming in and new kinds of thought in philosophy and economics that are making us think differently about whether that is the right reason in a lot of cases. And so now we're reconsidering our reasons for having that reason. Yeah. Right? And this is why it makes a difference. This is why it's not just sport. It actually helps right. you think better about something to think, well, you know, is that or is that the right f- set of reasons to be right. focusing on? So one, one, kind, one kind of law review article that would challenge the – promise keeping norm would say hey look here's a case i don't pick pick a case about uh maybe fulfillment of a um uh, of a uh, production obligation where you know the producer was obliged to supply you with a certain amount of stuff right and and they uh, break their promise uh because they get a better deal somewhere else okay and that seems wrong and then the article goes through to tell you why this is actually better because they can compensate the person and still come out ahead and this is good because both parties get are better off because of the breach of the promise right this is called the efficient breach i mean the law students everywhere are introduced to this pretty early in the first year right um and that law review article says hey in this case this is what we should do right and that's fine that's one mode of scholarship and it may be the kind of practical scholarship that judge edwards would would embrace in the more narrow version of what of what he accepts, but there would also be value in an in an article talking about the underlying theory of promise keeping, right? Which isn't concerned with any particular case, but questions at an abstract level whether promise keeping is the right approach in law more generally and in contract in particular, right? And not as a matter in Posner, Judge Posner elsewhere is criticized like abstract moral philosophy as being able to provide answers and has embraced a kind of pragmatism. I think that's still compatible, though, with the idea that you could write an article about whether promise keeping is the right overriding principle in law, or whether it's a principle which has to, which is has to accommodate other principles, even as a matter of just pragmatic, you know, judicial thought. Uh, and so, you know, an article which is about theories of promise keeping could be a really good article, which is an important, you know. If I'm going to decide a case as a judge 20 years down the line, it would be helpful to have a line of scholarship, which is the intensely maybe practical article about why efficient breach is a good idea in a certain set of cases and maybe a bad idea in another set of cases. But that article will be inspired by this other article, which itself talked about how the uh, uh, the, the norm of promise keeping is a principle and not a not a command, right? It's not a it's not necessarily a command that we must always keep. That it might be better sometimes to break our promises, right? Uh, and if there's an article, this is just an example, but um, I think it it shows that um, what's the right word? But it's about it's about more than having um, discrete reasons in individual cases for resolution, right? And he cites Dworkin in particular as someone who, who who is able to kind of get people to think more broadly about how judges should think about their obligations to see the law more broadly. Other people, you know, whether you accept Dworkin or not, right, you, that model of judging is, is, is very influential. Um, but I think that kind of broader vision of what it means for us as a society to engineer the law should have led him to conclude that there is a place for basic research, just like there's a place for you know, pure mathematics that doesn't right that that doesn't help you directly design an airplane wing right, right? Or, pu- or pure chemistry that doesn't help you identify a drug treatment right, but just helps you understand better how these 
uh, existing elements interact. And and in law, it would be about how some reasons are connected to other reasons. You know, how if you believe in society doing better in some particular sense, that that reason is connected to a norm of promise breaking in some circumstances. Like that would be an interesting result. Right? Yes. It would be an interesting theoretical result. It would be intensely theoretical unless it were applied to particular cases. And I don't think, and this is the problem, I, this is my criticism of law reviews, and contra, again, Justice Roberts, if you pick up law reviews, you will find an emphasis on every article not only having, uh, you know, uh, uh, being a theoretical inquiry, but also having a direct application to particular cases or classes right. of cases. Right. And I don't think you, I don't think a discipline works well when you demand that every unit of talk contain that level of traction with practice. Right. I think there's a place for basic research. Right. Um, Which is why that's one way of stating that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why this piece struck me as so completely out of touch with reality that it's weird that it's this critique. And it's a critique of a world I don't recognize. Yeah. And that's that's and I certainly don't live in it. That's the Justice Roberts critique. And I don't think this is not about like defending our turf because I have a huge problems with what (laughs) what I said earlier. Like we we could build hours of our with our own critiques, huge problems. But it just doesn't comport with reality to think that you I mean, you just go to any website for any law review. Right. And you will find articles that seem, you know, again, not not intensely theoretical in the sense of having no traction with with cases, but that are intensely practical. They're driven by, you know, whether it's about healthcare or it's about drones or it's about this or it's about that, that, you know, these are, I, I think the norm these days is, is, and, and maybe, maybe judge Edwards, judge Edwards is responding to a particular moment in our legal past. Maybe where art, where whether it's the crits or the real, or, you know, the modern realists, whatever it was kind of took off and suddenly we're kind of, there, maybe there were more articles, uh, in this vein when, when, uh, I don't know whether it was the seventies or eighties, I, I don't know. Maybe we can have someone on who can give us more perspective on that, but that doesn't seem to be the moment now. Not at all. And, like, and actually think, close. And I think maybe we should have actually less traction in some area of scholarship for the reasons that judge Edwards actually gives, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, for the, for the idea that it's important that, that minds change over time and that, that, requires a bunch of different kinds of conversations to occur. So this is just, you know, again, for... And if, one of, and if the phenomenon you're trying to explain is why do judges spend less time reading law review articles today than they did in year X? Or if the phenomenon you're trying to explain is why do practicing lawyers read fewer law review articles today than they did in year X? If that's, if, if that's what you're trying to do, just answer that question. Right. Uh, the well, then number, you run up against the empirics that say that that's not so. Well, right, but 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 even putting that to one side, yeah, like the the number of alternative explanations that would occur to me, yeah, before anything mentioned here, yeah, is quite a long list, yeah, right. Just the number of things competing for people's attention, yeah. Even if you limit yourself to the things that they think would be most useful to them in their daily professional practice right is there's an enormous amount of things competing for those precious moments yeah so of course any one of them is going to get less attention yeah as the number of them have multiplied that, that's right i mean that, so, that's right uh, you know it just the whole thing is when we think about what we should do in the academy you know as teachers and and um 
as people who are kind of teaching new generations of lawyers and who are, despite what people say, having an effect on the direction of the law, right? Because, uh, and you can see that over time as new schools have grown up at, at Yale and Chicago, you know, these different schools of economics and the crits right. and, right. Uh, and you just can't, I think with a straight face, say that the predominance of those schools has not had an effect on the law, on the lived law of our time. It's clear, clearly has. But when you think about what we should be doing, um, I think you have to remember that, you know, you want the academy to take advantage of its position. And one of the ways that I think Edward says we should take advantage of that is, look, we have all this time or we have more, we're perceived to have a lot more time. And at least we have time to focus on these questions more deeply than maybe a practicing lawyer could yeah. who has to be right. really interested in getting the case done. Right. Um, I don't know that that's entirely accurate, but it's, but it's, there's a lot of truth to it, I, I, I think. Um, and, uh, I actually think we need to focus on the fact that what can we provide that law firms and maybe even government lawyers are not going to provide? What's what is the mar- what kind of le- what kind of uh, benefit to this engineering of law, good engineering of law that we're trying to do as a society? What kind of benefit to that can we provide in our position that would be underprovided by the market otherwise, or by other public institutions? Right. In other words, clearly it's going to be some kind of public good, right? So what kind of public good can right. we provide that we can't rely on law firms or other government actors to provide because their positions, whether it's politics or their particular kind, they're overridden by other kinds of production of other public goods, you know, resolutions and cases or, uh, or, or regulatory uh, rules, what have you. Um, and if you think about it like that, maybe uh, one of the important things that we can do is to provide the glue in the conversation that is law, the big mosaic of conversation, that glue which kind of sticks things together but doesn't answer what should happen in particular cases, right? But helps us answer those questions better down the line. You know what I mean? It's yep. like providing uh, – and, and, and I think what Edwards would say about that is fine, but if no one is kind of attaching to your glue, then you're wasting your time. That seems to be the critique, right? If, 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 if yeah, but that, raises, never, it, that yeah. raises an interesting question, which is how do you know that no one is attaching to it? Like what would be your evidence that, that the glue was failing of its essential function? And it's not good enough just to cite crazy titles of articles. Right. You can't – correct. You can't just say – you can't just use the silly title trope. Right. Um, I, that's in, that, that merits pondering. Um, be, but I don't think he's come up with – uh, a test or an adequate assessment, an adequate uh, acid test for that proposition. And I just is that glue yeah. failing of its essential purpose. And I think there are a lot of busy lawyers who don't read law review articles. Maybe most, right? Fair point. Um, but sometimes, and and in fact, I have to say, when I practiced, um, and I and I got a new assignment and a, and a new appeal to do or dispositive motion. That's normally what I did in a case in an area that I didn't know a lot about. I would take some time to look for a good law review article. And I would do that not because I would be able just to copy down the reasoning, but this is someone who spent a long time thinking about this question in a broad way. Right. And it gives you a map of uh, of the kinds of reasons which people are thinking about. Well, well, even if often... it's about a new – even if it's a piece of advocacy, which it can be a good background that Absolutely. no lawyer at any particular firm would have had the necessary incentive to produce. Right. And I, you know, I, and sometimes those things are, are written by law professors. Sometimes they're written by law students. Um, you yeah, know, notes can be great, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. And I would, so I would often, um, when I was a, a much younger lawyer, 
um, and therefore m- more often found myself in the situation you describe, where there's an assignment that raises new issues and new things that I haven't thought about. I need to learn some stuff. I would always go to a treatise first. Like I tried to have a good sense of what the sort of gold standard treatises were in that field. Right. Right. So Don Chisholm in patent law or the Nimmer treatise in copyright or McCarthy in trademark. Yeah. Um, a Rita in antitrust. Um, and I would go and I would spend time identifying the right, you know, sub chapter in the book and I would look at it. And I would very carefully look at the footnotes because what what was I looking for? I was looking for the cases that kept getting mentioned again and again that yeah. seemed to bear on the issue I had. Yeah. And the law review articles that got mentioned again and again. And there would be some there. That's interesting because, you know. What, and what, I would go look yeah. at those things. Whatever I would go read that case. I would go read that piece yeah. in the whatever, the Columbia Law Review or the yeah. Stanford Law Review, whatever it would be. I would go look at it. But I think what Judge, Judge Edwards would say uh, uh, is that um, – the the that the treatises in a way are more valuable. Although he's not making that kind of old style argument that that you know he he does he makes both doesn't he? Yeah. I mean this, I'm having a lot of trouble tra- kind of talking about it. But he um, the treatises are, are clearly have traction with practicing lawyers, right? right? And there's not enough of that kind of scholarship going on, right? You need a maybe a balance. He uses that he word, uses the word balance, and and he's sophisticated enough to it's realize that the kind of balance is not in it's not an article per article thing, right? But there needs to be a balance in the field. In other words, more scholars working on the traction part, even if you have some scholars doing basic research. But and if the, the piece were more directed <laughs> in that way, I would totally agree with it, right? That that it, but but I think the field is that way. I agree. I mean, I think I I just think you know that his concept, if his conception is that we need. You know, in we need applied math, math, mathematicians and pure mathematicians, and there's a and there's a fuzzy line between them, and they are going back and forth between one another. If that's what we need in law, I think, and I think it is. I think we actually have that. There's something very close to it. I agree. Right? And um, n- and it and so when he trots out things like, you know, some lawyers are outright, some law professors are outright contemptuous of practical scholarship. I mean, I suppose that could be true. Um, I, I have to say, I I haven't met these people. Like, I don't know who they are um, because that's not what I hear people talk like or say. Um, right. And but but even if the, so, fine. Grant the point. Maybe just there, look at the scholarship that we've had on this show. Maybe Joe. there are such people. Yeah. But that's okay. Yeah. yeah like that because yeah. they are far from the norm. It just in my the, experience, I was going to say, just look at the scholarship that we've had on this show. Right. I mean. I, I think it's of interest to a broader audience because those scholars know a whole hell of a lot about a field that is of practical interest to normal people right. who don't do this for a living. And it could be about how to interpret things like the Constitution. It could be things like how does the modern administrative state work? It could right. be things like marijuana law. It marijuana could law could be searching your law. cell phones. Yeah. It could be – I mean we've had all kinds of people on – um, and talking about all kinds of things, and uh, and linked up all kinds of articles. Yeah, and that that are, that are at a in that represent a range of approaches, a range of engagement with individual cases or statutes, a range of engagement with philosophical traditions, with uh, 
uh, forms of social science or humanities based reasoning right. and evidence. I mean, I just feel like, we, you know, it's right. I, I, I think there's this field of yeah, straw yeah. men and he's lit a blaze. Right. And it's just like, ultimately, I think they, what's the point of that? At its, at, it, at its best moments, the piece has, I think, the right conception of this, there being this balance and there being a value in kind of pure theory and in, and in application and that there, to the extent that he that his point is mainly empirical, that the scholarship is too tilted away from, I think it's absolutely. I think it's just empirically wrong. Yeah. In the same way that Justice Roberts was absolutely wrong in concluding like what you would find if you just opened up a random law review. And so it is again to me it is fascinating why they are drawn to this thing, why they why they keep me- why these very prominent people yeah. keep saying this stuff. Is it because of the state of scholarship in the seventies or eighties or maybe? I, that's I, some listener feedback, especially from profs on this, would be good. Like, what is it? Sort of an anti-crit backlash of some kind, or you know, or an it, anti-moral philosophy kind of thing. Uh, I, I don't know, and, and or is it like experience in law school with classes you didn't cause, like? Because it sure sounds like there's a sense in which it has this sort of anti-intellectualism edge to it. That's what ruffles a little bit, right? But I think Edwards is careful not to do that in this piece. In, in many yeah. passages, he he, yeah. he says things that are – I often found myself thinking – this is part of why it was such an irksome thing to read. I found myself thinking, well, this is interesting because this paragraph is so – it seems so right on, and but it's in the middle of this stuff that's terrible. And I, don't right. put, I couldn't put it all together. Like, where is this coming from? But the, that's why I say it's not anti-intellectual in the sense that he's uh, – because – some of I know the tropes I, are, now that but, I think about it, it's not really the principles that he has wrong. I mean, this phrase that he keeps using that, that Michael Dorff criticizes is, seems odd to me because it seems to cover the field of things. And, right. Uh, and, and then but, – but he doesn't miss – again, he does not miss the conception of law that conceives of it as not only the reasons for decisions but the reasons for having these reasons, right? And that is a place for theory to come in. And you know, maybe if, there are any kinds of, if there's any kind of scholarship that's in his crosshairs, maybe it's my kind of scholarship, which we've not really talked about right. that much. But maybe it's that kind of scholarship, and, and, except for the, that kind of scholarship, which has been successful. <laughs> and that's, that's Dworkin, and stuff, which is okay, right? So it's right. Only, only if it's successful in changing minds and, you know, and he right. cites a few. Um, and in that sense, a better title might have been, you know, some stuff I like and some stuff I don't. <laughs> Because you're, because, yeah. okay, like that, yeah, that's interesting. I suppose it's interesting to know, um, again, you're a very prominent and accomplished lawyer. What are the things that you have found influential and interesting for you? Okay, that's, that, all right. Uh, you know, so do you that's, think if we that's sat, inherently interesting. Do you think if we sat down with him and we just thumbed through, like, the latest law reviews from, I don't know, just take any any number of schools? He, here's the sentence we'd be hearing a lot. That's not what I meant. You think? We'd hear that a lot from him, I bet. Yeah, but th- I think that we would agree on a lot of things. Like, boy, that article doesn't need to be seventy pages. Of Look course. at all these footnotes. Uh, we, we would agree would on agree all with of that, right? Absolutely. And, but it's just the um, and and then when we said, but look, Judge, you said bef- you you criticize this sort of thing, and but and do you see in this like the latest issue of the Michigan Law Review? C- do you see anything like the sort right. of thing you were criticizing? Oh no, and I, more, that, and I more, didn't mean that issue of the law, of Michigan Law right. Review. That one's pretty good. And more pointedly, what should this person have been doing instead of this? Oh yeah, great question. Right? I mean, what. And um, I just I don't so I the more I talk about it, which and suggests we've talked ourselves there, out there. of. And again, I only read through his piece once, and it was rather quickly. Yeah. So Same I might me. be missing, you know, the usual caveat that I'm an idiot. But um, so I might be missing some stuff here uh, about what. But but the more I think about it, and the more we talk about it, the more I really do think that we don't have much theoretical disagreement. 
I think our disagreement is just empirical about what it is that law profs do for the most part. And on the style point, we mainly agree. Don't you think? We got to end this thing, Joe. Yeah. I mean, I, no, I think that's, I think it's basically right. Uh, but to, but to describe it that way really misses the depth of the, di- it is true. There don't seem to be deep th- theoretical disagreements. It is also true that on the style stuff, we would make many of the same critiques. But to limit and say, oh, so we basically just disagree about the like the total state of the current world. Right. That's a lot to disagree about. Yeah. And it, and when your disagreement is that sweeping about something Im- as important as kind of like what's really going on right now and in the last 15 years of my professional experience. Yeah. That makes me think, well, actually, maybe we don't agree about theory as much as you might hope or think you know we didn't you know what we didn't talk about joe what um my long airplane flight and my latest thoughts on so you get two minutes on the coast theorem no i'm not i I think i think we should leave that one no i I want to hear it now i I flew for i flew one one flight was uh, about 15 or 16 hours (sighs) and that was the second leg and you know the first was to la and and then and then the other one was 14 Guess, did I lean my seat back, Joe? Did I lean it back? Ask me. Did you lean it back? No. Ever? No. Ever? No. Not even to sleep? No. Why not? You don't need to. Fascinating. Hmm. Did other people lean into you? Of course. First one. First one in the whole plane. <laughs> <laughs> um, although, as, we, as we've said before, it would be appropriate to lean the seat back on an overnight flight. It would be. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't have... when And many people probably did do that. Yeah, I looked behind. The person behind me was like kind of doing something and, and using the screen and wasn't sleeping. And right. anyway, I was against the window and so I was able to kind of lean against oh, the yeah, window. Right. And um, boy, I got a lot of thoughts about plane design now, Joe. I don't know. We'll go into them though. Okay. Uh, next week is our um, one year anniversary. Is it really? Yes. Of zero? Yeah. Of episode zero? Episode zero came out one year ago. That's amazing. Uh, when you say next week, what do you mean? I think it's uh, Saturday or okay. Monday, twenty second. I don't know when that is. Oh yeah, I think it's the twenty second. That's Monday. Yeah, Monday. that was when we posted our first uh, our first episode, episode zero. It's amazing. So, um, you know, maybe we'll have a cake. That'd be cool. We, we need to do something good though. We I'm got, always up we, for cake. We gotta have we gotta have a good topic. Um, I'll be over my jet lag. Uh, a lot of energy. We're gonna tear into something next week, listeners. You know. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com or oral argument on, uh, on Twitter. Sure. And, uh, you can find, uh, you can also find, uh, Joe and me on Twitter through the oral argument thing. Right. So if you just go to oral argument on Twitter, you'll yeah. find us. And, and, and we've got a Facebook page. If you want to put something there, if that's your preferred yeah, you, means of communicating, we're there too. Not just on Twitter. Wherever you want to go. We're not there. Just the email. Wherever you want to go, we're there. We're ubiquitous. Yeah. What, and, um, yeah. Big topics next week, next week, Joe? What do you think? No idea. Oof. 